0: Hi, and welcome to the Writers' Forum on WRBH. I'm David Benedetto, and today I am very happy to be joined by writer, historian, and activist Rebecca Solnit. She is the author of 20 books on feminism, Western and Indigenous history, Popular Power, Social Change and Insurrection, Wandering and Walking, and Hope and Disaster. Her books include The Mother of All Questions, Men Explain Things to Me, Hope in the Dark, and with Rebecca Snedeker, Unfathomable City, a New Orleans atlas. She is also a columnist for Harper's Magazine and writes for multiple online publications. On Monday, March 19th, she will be in New Orleans and featured at the Kendall Cram Auditorium at Tulane University, an event put on by the Newcomb College Institute and which will be open to the public. Rebecca Solnit, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Well, one of the things I was really enjoying when preparing for this interview is reading through the slew of topics that you've written on, which, you know, go from indigenous rights to cultural atlases, uh, you seem to have so many interests. And I'm wondering, how do you narrow down what you want to write about in any given moment?
1: And that question assumes that I narrow down. I I'm, I'm sometimes feel like the cat that's trying to chase all the butterflies in the room or all the moss, and um, you know, and I often envy writers like Michael Pollan and Bill McKibben who have a very clear focus and don't stray from it in what they write about overall, but I feel like the discipline and focus I'm committed to is good writing and kind of integrity in relationship to facts and truths and histories and Representation of the underrepresented, and that's the equipment, and with it you can go anywhere.
0: No, I, I get that. Um,
1: yeah, the, it all sort of connects. You know? A lot of it is about landscape and place and cultural geography and nature, and a lot of it is about human rights and amplifying those who haven't been heard, whether it's women or indigenous people, people of color, uh, uh, queer people, people who've been shut out for some reason.
0: Yeah, and and to kind of to quote you from an essay that was published uh, online, at least today in Harper's, um, to be a writer is to quote, put events on the record, which I, I want to get into the more details of that essay, which I think is fascinating and, and really interesting. But I love that idea of a writer being someone who was there to broadcast these things and the power of that. Uh, What was your kind of initial conception of what a writer was, and how was it kind of finalized into that?
1: Oh, the initial conception was being a kid who just learned to read and fell in love with books and just thought of it all as stories. And when you're a little kid, most of what you get is fiction, you know, fairy tales and Dr. Seuss and things. And then gradually I began to home in on being an essayist, a nonfiction writer, and I got a degree from the Graduate School of Journalism at UC Berkeley, which was wonderful training in the ethics of what you do, in your responsibility towards the people you represent, the people who read you, and the historical record to not distort or mislead um, what happened, who's, who's there, who needs, who needs to be represented things like that. So, <laughs> uh,
0: When did you know you wanted to write?
1: Well, I was in love with stories and places. Those were kind of my two passions as a kid, and, and stories about places. But books were like these treasure boxes I didn't know how to open until all of a sudden first grade in reading came, and I'm so grateful to Mrs. San Felipe, who taught me to read, and suddenly... That first semester, of first grade, I just thought, I was just like, you know, it's like a million boxes that you couldn't open. Suddenly you can open and every one of them has a world and people and uh, miracles and explanations inside. And I thought I wanted to be a librarian. And then somewhere that winter, I realized like, oh, my God, somebody actually gets to write the books. (laughs) And then I made my final career decision.
0: That's a big decision to make that early on.
1: Yeah, you know, and actually it it kind of simplifies things. And I used to, you know, it's a weird thing to decide because for what I wanted to do, there weren't a lot of clear templates, but it is a lot simpler than a lot of people I know who are good at a lot of things and aren't sure which direction to follow. They're like people at an intersection looking at good roads ahead of them. I was just sort of saw one path and I just had to keep trudging along on it
0: which is is really interesting, do you remember the first thing that you wrote?
1: Oh my God, nobody has ever asked me that This is a huge revelation, New Orleans, <laughs> yes, and I still have it, and it is um it's a one sentence when I grow up, I will never get married by Becky Solmet, which is. <laughs> kind of testimony to what my parents' marriage and my mother's situation looked like. So yeah. I wouldn't exactly call it a feminist essay, but it was, well, you know, maybe it was a feminist essay responding to what looked to me like a pretty bleak and powerless situation for women.
0: Yeah, oh, An opening salvo to, you know, a career uh, talking about those those subjects. Um,
1: Yeah, and so far, as I like to say, I've meddled in that event.
0: Interesting. Um, One of your projects and and works that I uh, deeply, deeply enjoy and and love very much is Unfathomable City, uh, a New Orleans atlas, um, which you collaborated with with Rebecca Snedeker on, as well as several other talented writers um, in the city and surrounding it. And artists and cartographers. And and artists and cartographers. And
1: magnificent designer, Leah Chandra.
0: It's it's a beautiful book. Tell me about that experience and, and getting together with Rebecca and all these wonderful personalities to bring it to life
1: New Orleans was this kind of magic thing magic place on the horizon I visited briefly twice when I was young in the touristy way where you don't don't really know where you are don't see much don't you know heard some great music danced, um, lost a leather jacket and some makeup <laughs> but I was started investigating how disasters unfold to prepare for the 100th anniversary of the San Francisco earthquake the 1906 earthquake which meant that I was working on the subject of disaster in 2003, 2004, 2005. So when Katrina hit, I thought, "Oh my god, The media and authorities are getting it wrong exactly the same way, demonizing ordinary citizens, treating them as enemies and rather than you know, devastated fellow you know, brothers and sisters, Mm -hmm. the same stupid myths obsessing about violence and looting and protecting private property rather than human life or surfacing. So I was like it Prompted me ultimately to write my book, A Paradise Built in Hell, whose last section is about New Orleans, and that came out in 2009, where I really looked at the amazing communities that really happened. And the beginning of that uh, book, in part, was coming with my friend Sam to New Orleans, who, like Rebecca Snedeker, is a filmmaker, so she was a friend of a friend of his. and you know we were kind of scraping up people we knew in New Orleans so she met us actually at is it the Carousel Bar in the French Quarter mm-hmm. 6 months after Katrina when the city was still felt really abandoned and you know it was dry but otherwise felt like the catastrophe had happened last week and she was full of southern hospitality, she said to me, hey, if you ever come back, you can stay with me. And I was like, be careful what you ask for, because I knew I was coming back. And so I made sure I got her address. I sent her a copy of my book about Edward Moybridge and the birth of cinema to kind of sweeten up the connection. And then I came and stayed with her. And then I came and stayed with her again between 2006 and 2012. I, or 13, I visited New Orleans probably around 20 times. And it's, I did an Atlas of San Francisco that came out in 2010. There was uh, some overlap with the two books. And it was a big success and it was a big adventure to be commissioning people to do things I couldn't do, um, to write, you know, in different ways about different subjects and me, to bring art, art to maps and to make beautiful maps. The way that people had in the 17th and 18th and 19th century. So the we decided to. You know, and I wasn't done with New Orleans because I came there to look at the worst thing that ever happened to it, but I fell in love with all the magnificent things that are that had been happening and are still happening. The kind of way people are so alive on the street, the sense of cultural continuity. Um, you know, the great wellspring of American music and culture. And, um, you know, and the larger history, Rebecca steered me towards of what it means to be at the bottom of the Mississippi where, you know, the whole interior of the continent kind of gathers and pours out into the Atlantic. And there was just so much, so many histories there. So we did an atlas. And it let me talk about what could be celebrated in new orleans which was really present in a paradise built in hell in a way but i was also talking about police murders and racism and um, vigilante violence and things so it was nice to come back with something a little bit sweeter and it gave me an excuse to keep coming back
0: which which is in case i needed an excuse (laughs) exactly
1: (laughs) and i really suddenly New Orleans, New York, which we did the final atlas of. It came out in late 2016. And San Francisco has sister cities there, these cities that are almost islands, you know, a peninsula, a place surrounded by water. And New York is kind of an archipelago where only the Bronx is part of the continental, the North American continent. You know, they're queer cities. They're immigrant cities. They're port cities that always had a lot of sailors and sex and, you know, things um, being imported and exported. They're, I think, the three great cultural capitals that have made subversive culture reshaped major parts of what the American voice is going to be mm-hmm. in music, in poetry, um, in literature, in visual art. And so it made sense to do the three of them together, and the Atlas is now a trilogy.
0: Which is great. So, so there are no more atlases on the horizon.
1: They are so much work and so much fundraising. <laughs> and Rebecca did a lot of the management day to day and kind of the wrangling our stray cats. Because making an atlas is a lot of cat herding as well as fundraising. But, you know, I love being a writer. And they were an interesting interruption of that. And I'm back to mostly being a writer.
0: which which is
1: great what I hoped is that other people would do atlases and you don't always want your books to be imitated but with that one or those three I was like let a thousand atlases bloom I feel like every place should have an atlas And I made them, I should add, because I am talking to New Orleanians, not with like, oh, these 22 maps tell you everything you need to know about New Orleans, but it's like, here's 22 different ways of looking at a city and a recognition that no two people live in the same city in the same spirit that therapists say no two people live in quite the same family. You know, like, what's your version of New Orleans or wherever you are? What's your experience, whether you moved there last week or your great-great-great-great-great-grandmother, you know, was there? How does your race, your class, your interests, your sexual orientation, your frame of reference, your passion shape how you experience a city? And, uh, you know, it felt like it was an invitation to people to keep exploring, keep opening up where we are. And the first atlas was called Infinite, the second Unfathomable, the 3rd nonstop, with a sense that cities are inexhaustible, you know, that everybody has their own version. And with 400,000 people, each of whom have dozens, we're talking, 10. you know, 10 million would be selling the city short, even without talking about all the people who have lived there over the last three centuries and all the Native people there before. No, of on all the tourists who pass through, and all the sailors and soldiers and everybody else.
0: No, I, I appreciate that's one of the things I, I've really appreciated the book, and I recommend it to uh, friends visiting or acquaintances that have just moved here at, for that particular reason to provide a uh, sense of the city in both modern and historical uh context where it's at but not everything about it but kind of a way in a window to the multiple ways of viewing it which is really useful and um has been really helpful for a lot of people i think
1: thank you yeah you'd be insane to think that you could do a comprehensive atlas of a city because there are infinite versions and we mapped um kind of middle eastern arab culture but we didn't we came close to doing a map of vietnamese culture there's a map I still want to make if someone wants to sponsor it about Plessy and Ferguson and their legacy and the way the two families reached out and kind of came together after Katrina. You know, what happened? Well, we kind of got at what happened to schools after Katrina with the map about Bounce and how Mm -hmm. Bounce music became where the school's names lived on after it was all changed. But we we did several maps relating to music, but We could do so many more, you know, and there's so many ways to map a place.
0: That's true. A a different kind of mapping, mapping the culture. To to pivot a little bit to a more national conversation, um, you have been writing about sexual violence and sexual abuse throughout your career in in multiple ways um, and the pervasiveness of it. Um, With the hashtag MeToo movement that started up in the past few months. Um, I read an essay in on Vox by uh, the wonderful journalist, uh, Constant Grady, talking about the inadequate language surrounding sexual violence and how it's either too little or too much. And uh, being someone that writes in that vein so often, I wanted to hear your thoughts about approaching writing about these subjects and, and how you uh, navigate that relationship with your audience and, and making things... Affecting or very real.
1: You know, I've I've tried to go at it. You know, any possible way that can make it matter to people. And I grew up in a house full of domestic violence, or go the "when I grew up, I will never get married" thing. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, and my, when I was a, in my late teens and early twenties, I just had so much street harassment, which always people think always means someone saying, hey, baby, but it meant people following you and threatening you. I had people spit on me, threaten to kill me, jump me, you know, and it really deeply impacted me, my sense, you know, my sense of lack of safety, of lack of freedom, lack of equality, lack of rights. And it also freaked me out, because this to me was so clearly, you know, about civil rights and human rights, the, the right, the equal right of women to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, including the ability to walk down the street at night and move move with freedom and to be free from violence and, um, you know, and the threat. So I've told first-person stories. I'm actually working on a book now where I tell some I haven't told before. And often I'm asked a lot of data And uh, in my book, Wanderlust, I talked about the different ways women were sexualized, you know, as public women, women of the streets, streetwalkers, as though to be out in public was to be a prostitute, and to be a prostitute was a woman who had no right to set boundaries and limits on her body, you know, including how the the law and the police treated women in earlier eras, as well as the street stuff. Mm -hmm. I've also marshaled a lot of statistics because... One of the things that was going on until this incredible feminist upheaval of the last few years was an insistence that we treat every incident as an isolated event, you know, and it was like there was just so many dots that people didn't want to connect, you know, that there had been really important work that absolutely should have happened around racial violence, around homophobic violence in the 1990s, recognizing the murder of Matthew Shepard, recognizing the lynching of James Byrd, cetera, And I just wanted that kind of recognition that this comes out of hatred and it's systematic and it impacts a whole category of people. So I've amassed a lot of statistics about gender violence, including that violence by former and present partners is a leading cause of injury to women between the ages of 15 and 44 worldwide, which I think is pretty shocking. You know, and it's weird because there's ways people adjust to this and make it invisible and don't look at it that is part of what allows the problem to continue. Mm-hmm. And what's been exciting to me these last five years when a lot of great feminist voices like Roxanne Gay and Kate Harding and oh, I could list a bunch of them, Amanda Marcotte have arisen, is that we're at last, connecting the dots, naming it, and that's part of a process that happens when you make, you name something, you make it visible, you make the people impacted by it more audible so that it's no longer possible to kind of worm away from it, pretend it's not happening, um ignore it trivialize it isolate each incident and say like well what was she wearing or he was mentally ill and that has nothing to do with anything or you know all those you know it's kind of like gun violence in this moment right now with the amazing students in the high school in parkland i think feminism like you know the activism around gun control has kind of burned through all the excuses and justifications and and circumlocutions and, you know, and now we get to call it by its real name, which is always an important step in resisting something. So it's looking at something incredibly ugly, but in a moment that actually is really beautiful because I think we're making some really significant change.
0: Um speaking about digital culture, um, what's kind of your relationship with what you know, viral uh media and because I know a few of your essays have now gone viral, have really touched the nerve in a lot of ways, um, including, you know, men explain things to me and one that you did either last year or two years ago for Lit Hub talking about the um Esquire list of eighty men eighty eighty books every men should read. Um how do you feel yeah. about yeah,
1: there was a period where a lot of us writers were kind of purist about like books, not online. I'm just happy if people read stuff and I have mixed feelings about the internet and the digital world and living in the shadow of Silicon Valley about how they're changing culture and economy and privacy and consciousness and, and stuff like that. But I love it the way that work circulates online and, um, you know, the first thing I ever put online was an essay about hope that turned into the book Hope in the Dark," right after this country invaded iraq and uh, it went super viral about that, and the essay meant explained things that probably had more circulation than anything I've ever done and it was just so exciting to see the immediacy and the directness and you know the kind of unlimitedness of how it could move. So I'm good with the online world up to a point. And there's piracy and a kind of lack of respect for people's right to have some control over what happens with their work. Mm -hmm. That happens even more with, you know, film and music and stuff that I don't love because I want every artist to make a living. But, you know, and I think the Internet could have been something much different if it wasn't run by greedy, libertarian, hyper-capitalist white, white dudes in Silicon Valley, um, you know. But there's some good stuff there, and I do love seeing the work circulate, and I love Lit Hub and some of the other platforms that I've worked with.
0: Yeah. Um, you had mentioned the the Parkland students earlier, um, and not to get too much on that incident, but I was interested in...
1: Oh, let's get on it as much as, you know.
0: Yes. It's, <laughs> it's,
1: what's happening there is big.
0: Yeah. What are your what are your thoughts on that? And what are your thoughts on that in the overall context of progressive activists and the role of activists today moving forward and changing of tides? Do you see any big push in both this and in the hashtag me to movement really pushing things over in a different direction?
1: Yeah, for me, it's a hope in the dark moment. And that book was a celebration of darkness, of the deep mystery of how change works and how people find their voice and their power. And, you know, and I would never... T- I want to give full credit to the students who are just so amazing and, you know, on point and fearless and funny and generous. And But I also think... It was the right moment. We kind of burned through all the excuses, all the thoughts and prayers, all the let's pretend that this was an isolated incident, just like we have with gender violence. You know, we've connected the dots and said that, you know, and people are fed up and they're like, you know, there's an earlier hashtag from the Isla Vista Massacre, not one more, Mm -hmm. you know, like this never again hashtag. So... You know, but nobody could have predicted that this school shooting would be different. We wouldn't obsess about the killer, you know, with that the survivors would steal the story and the limelight and do something just so magnificent with it. And I think it's incredibly exciting and I think it's really changing things. And I think it's very analogous to what's happening with Me Too where there was one story about Harvey Weinstein by that opened up space for lots and lots of women to come forward and tell stories, you know, and men to come forward and tell stories about other situations and other industries from including farm workers and uh, restaurant workers and people who, you know, have less, less recourse than the Hollywood actresses um, who we're at the beginning of this. So I think it's incredibly important. And it's just fascinating because so much of it is like a change in the weather. It used to be incredibly dangerous for politicians to, you know, be at odds with the NRA. And something magic happened. The NRA no longer kind of controls the storyline. And um, it may turn out, you know, in November, if we keep it up, that it's being associated with the NRA, having the NRA's approval that's toxic for politicians, not the opposite. And that's just so, you know, that's a huge transformation. And we can't exactly measure how it happened, you know, because it's about a kind of collective imagination, collective spirit, where people are fed up, they've heard all the excuses. You know, and we've made fun of all the excuses, and we're just so tired of burying children and living in fear, and and um, having the gun lobby decide that profit for corporations is more important than the lives of children.
0: Yeah, I, I find yeah, I, I agree with most of those things that you're saying right there. Um, I am also interested in your thoughts about someone that studied movements that that looked at movements over. Generations, how do you feel about the idea that some of these things take are, are generational in in their approach to change like how how is your relationship with you know knowing that as an individual um, everything that you do it's not that it doesn't matter but it it's 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 chipping away at something that may take a very long time to really have an effect
1: I feel great about it, and I often feel that part of what makes me hopeful is taking the big historical perspective. And there was a really dismal period for feminism in the line, in the nineties and early in the millennium, where people were like, "Oh, feminism failed. Yeah, feminism didn't change anything." And I, you know, and I often perk people up when they come up with things like that, saying like, "Well, things might not be better than they were six months ago, but let's look at where they were fifty years ago." Yeah. You know, and you can certainly do that around other stuff. I'm living in San Francisco. I'm very cognizant of. The way that to be gay or lesbian or something other than hyper heterosexual made you a person who could be treated as either criminal or mentally ill, harassed, threatened, excluded from jobs, often punished and ostracized by families, denied all you know equal rights, um, evicted, kicked out of the military, um, and worse. And um, so, I see these long arcs of history, and I know that it's like those cathedrals that you build, you know, over centuries. And with feminism, I feel like that's one of the oldest oh, institutions on earth, and the fact that, you know, we haven't completely fixed everything in 50 years. You can go back to the women's suffrage movement mm-hmm. beginning in the 1840s, let's say, 100 and. What is that? Uh, you know, 180 years. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, is okay by me because I see change continuing to happen, and because we're trying to change something that's two or three or four thousand years old. And you know, to have this, to have my life and my nieces and great nieces' life be so different than my mother's and grandmother's lives were, that's pretty huge.
0: Yeah.
1: And it's funny because actually, you know, and. Um, One of the metaphors I use in the new edition of Hope in the Dark is that um, all those people who went out to rescue people in boats after Katrina, you know, knew that they couldn't save everybody, but they could save somebody, so they decided to save somebody, you know. We're not going to fix everything and we're not going to save everybody in our activism, but we might make an enormous difference for somebody or for a lot of people. So I just, you know, and I think it's delusional. And this is such a big, rich, interesting question. Mm -hmm. I think it's delusional to think that we act alone and we're always building on top of what came before and somebody's going to build on top of that. And just as we always see things that people didn't see before, see racism with new insights, see homophobia, you know, with new insight, but also see, you know, see other things like natural systems in ways we didn't 50 years ago. So people who come after us are going to see things that are still invisible to us, understand things in ways that we don't yet. And so I'm excited to be somewhere in the middle of a long process that began before I was born and is going to continue long after I'm gone
0: yeah i I think that's beautiful do you do you ever get discouraged though and and if you do how do yeah. you how do you how do you get yourself out of that
1: well the thing that really distresses me the most is climate change because I don't want anyone to suffer from you know violence and injustice inequality but there is a sense that Maybe we'll get it right later, whereas with climate change, there's no second chance. We have this narrowing window as climate change gets worse and worse to preserve a somewhat stable, safe planet for all living things, preserve the patterns of the seasons, the weather, the um, growing, you you know, the agricultural um possibilities etc then the places that are inhabitable Mm -hmm. the sea level and we're running out of time and the election of the trump administration has been a huge setback to that and um you know a lot of other countries in the world and a lot of u.s states are taking important action but it's not You know, it's like we're bailing a boat, but it's leaking a lot faster than we're bailing it. And that's the thing that really concerns me. And I do see extraordinary and hopeful things there, including the fact that all over the world, renewable energy is becoming as economically viable or sometimes even cheaper than fossil fuel energy. And the transition is being made you know, in places like Iowa, not just places like Germany that you tend to hear about. Mm -hmm. But it's devastating and it's urgent. So, you know, so, but again, it's the after Katrina thing. We're not going to save everything. You know, species will go extinct. Um, Sea levels will rise. Places will become uninhabitable. But how much that happens, we still have some control over how that happens. And I think, you know, we can still make decisions. We can still go for the lesser version of climate change rather than the greater version. I'm on the board of Oil Change International, a great climate action uh, group now, and get to feel like I'm doing a little bit on that. But I often feel that, like a bunch of my friends, I should just be on it full-time all the time. Hmm. But I can't stay away from women's rights and some of the other cultural things that engage me.
0: You need to need to have a clone of yourself so you can just incorporate all these things, <laughs> everything used you want. I can to answer
1: some of the requests I got with of if there were six of me, one of them would love to do it. But there's only one, and <laughs> she's already overloaded.
0: Yes, I think that that is admirable. And uh, one, one day, maybe those uh, libertarians in Silicon Valley will help you out with that.
1: Ah, oh God, so I can be like Barbara Streisand's clone dog? No, thank you. (laughs) You know, that's another argument for diversity, is like, cloning is, I don't know. Yeah. Not my cup of tea.
0: Same, same. Um, Well... Rebecca, you've been so uh, gracious with the amount of time you've given me to talk with you. Uh, to, to kind of round out this interview, I, I'd love to hear what you're reading right now, and also uh, if you're working on any exciting projects in in the near future.
1: Oh, my gosh. Yeah, no, I'm reading Roxane Gay's Hunger. I'm reading a ton of books by women. I'm reading Philip Levine's poetry, um, God what else am I reading I'm reading um The Body Keeps the Score a book about how trauma you know, kind of embeds itself in how we inhabit our bodies uh, Diane DiPrima's Prima's Recollections of My Life as a Woman Adrian Brown's Emergent Strategy um you know yeah. some more Virginia Woolf always more Virginia Woolf mm-hmm. and kind of James Baldwin, kind of wandering around, poking at a lot of things and kind of losing track of one book in a pile and picking up another. But, you know, still in love with books.
0: That's a good thing. And uh, are you working on anything coming up soon?
1: Yeah, I have an anthology of essays called, call them by their true names, American Crises and Essays. That'll be out in September. Um, I just did my first children's book. Oh, wow. And... um, You know, and I'm writing a memoir-ish book that um, is still in early stages, so I don't know when it'll be out, but uh, that's been an interesting exploration.
0: Okay, well, fantastic. We're looking forward to seeing both of those. Um, Rebecca, thank you so much for coming on. This was a joy to talk with you.
1: And with you. Thank you so much.
0: That was writer, historian, and activist Rebecca Solnit. On Monday, March 19th, an evening with Rebecca Solnit will be a presentation in the Kindle Cram Auditorium at Tulane University. The event is open to the public, and for more information, please visit the Newcomb College Institute website, newcomb.tulane.edu. And that's our show. You've been listening to the Writers Forum on WRBH 88.3 FM here in New Orleans. You can hear us every Thursday at 3 p.m. as well as on Sundays at 8.30 a.m. All of WRBH's interview programs and podcasts can be found on soundcloud.com slash WRBH reading radio, as well as on iTunes and Google Play. I'm David Benedetto. Until next time.